This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. The ACT Party has declared war on long wait times at the ERA, calling personal grievances in particular slow, costly and open to abuse. Whether or not that's true, the machinations of the ERA are of interest to employers and employees. Joining me to discuss ACT's proposals for the court is Gerard Elwell, Senior Associate at Young Hunter Lawyers. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you, Dita. Now, tell us about where this bolt from the blue came from ACT. Yeah, a little bit of surprise. It probably didn't have uh, much, it probably wasn't foreshadowed much. And I guess it's symptomatic of we're obviously in a, an election cycle and labour relations, ways to improve things for employers or employees is usually fairly high up on the political party's lists. And it seems like an act of got in quite early uh, with, with these policy suggestions. Yeah, right. So, um, I mean, we have heard some things, as you say, about labour um, sort of employment policy, but this really takes it to the court, which is a bit unusual. What are, what are they saying here? Yeah, so they've they've specifically sort of uh, singled out, I guess, in some ways, the Employment Relations Authority or the ERA, mm-hmm. and they have identified that uh, there's opportunities to make the personal grievance process sort of fairer, faster, and more equitable. I'm paraphrasing here, <laughs> and they've um, they've identified three key areas that they're looking at, and so. Under an act government, if they were able to become part of the government um, or, or get these through in a coalition arrangement, um, more, being more likely, um, they would enforce a requirement that ERA determinations are delivered within one month of the hearing occurring. Yep. And they've added to that that they would uh, they would fire authority members who uh, didn't do that and meet their KPIs uh, in brackets after a, a fair and just uh, process, of course. <laughs> Which I thought was an interesting, uh, an interesting yes. addition to that policy yes, announcement. Yeah. yeah, quite forthright. And the second part is removing the eligibility for remedies if an employee's behaviour has contributed in any way to the grievance or to the dispute between mm-hmm. the parties. Right. And the third one is removing the ability for the Employment Relations Authority to reinstate employees. Yes. And they identified, you know, the wording was that, yeah, that they removing their ability to unilaterally reinstate which um, sounds like they're exercising draconian powers but they do have a, they do have a statutory <laughs> um, statutory jurisdiction over employment relations so it's not surprising right. that they do exercise that from time to time right um, otherwise they wouldn't have much reason to be around so <laughs> I thought we could perhaps break down these, these three uh, into more detail and yes. uh, perhaps a, a quick coverage of the cases that ACT has cited as, as examples of sort of okay. the, the process not working. Sure. Um, the, I agree fundamentally that there are issues with delays experienced by parties mm. and that old adage of justice delayed is, is justice denied does, does ring true. Mm. Uh, and I have had cases which have taken over two years to reach a resolution and Amazing. that's really unfortunate for the parties. Uh, it's it's expensive, uh, time-consuming, stressful and leaves them in a state of uncertainty whether you're acting for an employer or an employee. It's, it's difficult. So I think that needs to be acknowledged uh, at the start. So it's, it's not... It's not an area that is without its issues. However, I, I do think that the preference to have the de- decisions delivered is a is a, a, a 
a laudable one uh, within 30 days uh, or one month, but there are delays in other parts of the process that are probably far more significant right. and that people would perhaps uh, feel more um, more of a sense of improvement if they were if they were um, sped up a little bit. So just for example, it can take three to six months to have an application allocated to a member. So when you file an application, the ERA it goes into a pool, and they are, those those cases are eventually allocated to members. So that can take quite a while. Once the member has it, there can be a six to twelve month delay before you get to a hearing. And there are interlocutory matters around evidence and setting a hearing date and and those sorts of things which need to be done. But that's a considerable delay, yes. um, and the three months, you know, provided the members, the authority members, are able to deliver within three months, which isn't always the case. That three months is is probably not the most significant part of it. You've right. sometimes been waiting eighteen months, two years, just to get to the hearing. So, um, and also, is there enough members at the ERA? Is this one of the issues that there's actually not enough? I think I think resourcing is an issue. Yeah, yeah, right. resourcing is an issue. They have made efforts to appoint more members. There was certainly a spike in applications during COVID, and some of those surprise, maybe surprisingly for you, are still working their way through the system. Yeah, so yeah. there's still COVID cases being heard, and that did create a bit of a logjam because they weren't able to have the hearings and yet the applications were mounting up yes. in that time. Arguably, they should have been able to do that online. I mean, it, it seems to me as an outsider, the courts are pretty um, stone age when it comes to technology, and maybe there's a case for improvement there? Yes, there is increasing flexibility. Uh, yeah. I, I have had uh, witnesses give evidence uh, remotely, right. uh, which has which has been good, but yeah, uh, essentially the, the cases are in person, which presented a number of obstacles <laughs> during COVID, as, as you can imagine. Indeed. So you're saying um, the sort of staffing, they probably need a few more resources, a few more members, but this next thing that ACT has brought up in terms of um, being very punitive on the judges is interesting in light of that. Yes, and it's something that um, just sort of caught my attention because it's unusual for any political parties to sort of have a go at uh, members of the judiciary or even um, you know, these are these are courts of special jurisdiction, effectively. Yes. Um, so having a, having a go at them in this way seems uh, seems a little bit extreme. But um, yeah, I'm I'm not sure quite how that will play out. It, it might result in even more cases being in the ERA from uh, from members that have been disaffected by by being turned. So what's he's, what's he saying? He's going to terminate them. Why? What, what's uh, it's going to become part of the key performance <laughs> indicators, okay. and um, they they'll be terminated if they don't perform uh, by delivering the determinations within a, within a month within of, the time frame of the hearing. Yeah, yeah, right. No, okay. <laughs> uh, just as an aside, mm. um, there has been sort of an evolution of the ERA, and it's not necessary all entirely positive, I think, um, when it's viewed objectively. Uh, obviously, I'm involved as a lawyer in it um, quite frequently, but it has evolved from a, a relatively sort of informal area where disputes could be heard and to, to a much more sort of legalised environment where probably you, at a, you are at a disadvantage if you don't have qualified legal representation or an expert uh, advocate or HR person representing you. And that hasn't always been the case. And there were determinations given orally um, previously, and that's very seldom uh, the case now. So, yeah, there there are probably lots of 
areas, uh, opportunities for reviewing and improving yes. the system. But I'm not sure ACT has quite landed on, on the key issues here. So what I'm hearing you saying here is that ACT has talked a lot to business and maybe to employers, but maybe not so much to employment lawyers? <laughs> I suspect so. And I, I would have thought a party like ACT, I, I have no idea of, of their structure, would, would have plenty of access to lawyers, um, <laughs> if, if, if not members or, uh, or parts of the party. So, yeah, I, I'm a little bit surprised. It, it does appear to be a little bit of a perhaps a knee-jerk response or, or perhaps a misdirected uh, approach to resolving some issues that are there. Um, and, yeah, I just, just can't see it working that effectively in practice. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Let's get to this week's Economy Matters with Christoph Schumacher beaming in from Germany this week. Thanks for joining us, Christoph. So you've been pondering New Zealand's debt levels. Absolutely, because just before I left, the headlines were all about New Zealand reaching now record high debt levels, and we are spending even more than expected, so more than was budgeted for, and at the same time, income is lower as a result of the slightly slowing down um, economy. And where does Aristotle come into this? Well, if you look where the term economics comes from, it actually originated in ancient uh, Greece and means manager of the household. And Aristotle was actually the first who wrote about this and explained to us that we should run an economy like a household where we need to ensure people have food and shelter, um, that have access to education, uh, health care, uh, at the same time can spend time with friends and enjoy the arts. So this is sort of the overall picture of how uh, governments should run economies. But then, of course, there needs to be income to pay for it all. And that's where the problem is at the moment with New Zealand. Yeah, so what are your concerns there? And is our economy being mismanaged? Um, putting it into a global perspective, um, no. Uh, New Zealand is actually doing uh, relatively well. Uh, debt level is about 57, 58% of our GDP. That it's low compared to international standards. I mean, I'm now in Germany, and Germany is normally considered being quite careful and good with money. And even here, debt level is about 70% of GDP. And if we look into the States, it's 144%. So anything below 100% uh, debt level uh, compared to GDP is considered good and New Zealand sits in the lower part. So overall, I don't think we could say that our economy is mismanaged. So are we flourishing as a nation then on the Aristotle Wellbeing and Happiness Index? Um, probably not. We have a well-being budget, so, th so that's a good thing. Um, but as I mentioned, we are currently spending more than we could or should, um, and we are earning a bit less. So the government needs to take a closer look at how it is spending the money uh, we have, because creating deficits is never a good thing. I mean, you wouldn't be happy if your income drops and you're spending more at home. So given that we should manage economies like households, uh, we can't be happy about the current situation. There have been shocks, though. Um, I'm thinking COVID as well as this year's cyclone that is forcing the government to spend more. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And that's why I'm not actually really concerned. I wouldn't talk about any form of mismanagement. There were extreme circumstances, um, which we all knew cost a lot of money and extra money. But looking ahead, now that the economy is sort of slowing down a bit, we just need to be a bit more careful in the way we spend money. What can we learn from the Greeks then? They've been through financial troubles in the past decade or so. Probably the best thing we can learn is how not to do things, right? Um, uh, ancient Greek was flourishing, but more recent Greek is not, um, because they had a big uh, upset where they were facing bankruptcies, needed bailouts. Um, but the lesson still is, don't spend, as simple as it sounds, don't spend uh, more than you actually earn. And what about you comparing New Zealand with the likes of Australia in terms of debt? We are still better than the Australians. Our debt level is, is slower than Australia. Um, so as I've said, in an international context, we are actually doing well. And New Zealand always has been quite careful uh, and being careful with not building up too much debt. What about where you are right now in Germany? Germany sits at around 75, 76% of GDP, so still worse than New Zealand. So big message here is, yes, never a good thing uh, to increase your debt levels, but overall, New Zealand is still doing okay. And in terms of where the economy is heading, we're expecting sluggish growth, um, slightly negative, slightly positive quarters of growth to come. What does that mean in terms of debt? It'll probably suggest that debt levels will increase even further. Um, that's, that's where the warning has to come in of making sure the money we can spend is spent in the best possible way and not, not wasted in any sorts of way. And that's also currently a big debate, of course, in an election year. There are always uh, differencing opinions and how should we spend, can we spend it more efficiently and so on. So it's a very current topic at the moment. And that's just not government debt, that's also household debt as well with rising mortgage costs. Absolutely. Now, this is a far more worrying sign is that household debt levels in New Zealand are actually well above um, average. We are, we are sitting um, about probably 116% of household debt per disposable income. Now, um, that is not good. Uh, we are sitting way above uh, the likes of Germany, Australia, and even um, Greece. Uh, but this is a result of our increasing cost of living, the unaffordability of housing. People were forced to borrow more than they actually wanted to, and with an increase in OCR, that creates extra stress. So um, I believe that's where New Zealand has to be careful, that household debt levels are not uh, increasing any further because we're already pretty much right up there, but we don't want to be. Christoph Schumacher, thanks for your time. You're welcome. Liquium, a startup spun out of Victoria University's Wellington Uni Ventures, is looking to commercialise technology aimed at reducing greenhouse gases emitted in the production of ammonia, which it says is a promising alternative fuel for shipping and heavy industry. Joining me now is one of the co-founders of the research, Dr Frank Natale, and also Liquium CEO Paul Geraghty. Well, welcome to both of you. Uh, where did the idea for a new way of synthesising ammonia come from? I may jump into this this question, Fiona. Uh, so initially, I mean, um, the idea originated from um, a Blue Sky Academic Research um, 
program. You know, at the time, basically, I had this uh, lovely, talented uh, PhD student, Jay Chan, who is another co-founder at Liquium. And, um, and we are just, you know, doing um, basic fundamental science, looking at chemical reaction studies with new materials. And, and we saw an opportunity here. So not only, you know, to get a better understanding of the, the fundamental science, but also to try to assess and get a sense of how our technology could contribute um, to the chemical manufacturing. And in this case, as you said, it was, you know, production of ammonia. So very, you know, academic research, basically. And what will it do better than the existing um, way ammonia is produced? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. You know, that's a question that has been uh, uh, searched for many, many, in fact, decades. What, I mean, one aspect of our uh, innovation is around the materials we are using. And they, they allow basically one step of the reaction or the chemical reaction to be uh, potentially much faster and much more energy efficient than the industrial way we are producing ammonia currently. So um, at the end, basically, uh, it will make um, the cost of going greener uh, dramatically lower for the ammonia sector, in fact. Paul, uh, maybe you can answer this one. How hard is it uh, spinning out a company from university research? Um, yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, that, and I'll probably even reframe it. If it's not being hard, it, it more of being a very different challenge. Um, undertaking a research project at a university um, is quite different than what you have to, some of the challenges or um, pieces of information you have to solve for if you're wanting to start a company. So the primary difference in my view is that you have to, for a company has to have a pretty clear understanding and be able to envisage what the value proposition is to end customers and users. And researchers are really good at articulating how something can get out. And I think that is true, but it's actually having a, a much deeper understanding and into a, what you need to do to scale that process up as well. So I wouldn't say it's um, difficult. It's just two different challenges and two different things, yeah. How has the um, company been funded to date? Uh, so the company's been supported from from New Zealand Venture Capital. Uh, it's where we got our seed funding. Prior to that, we were supported from government funding to kind of give us through the pre-seed accelerator fund and uh, KiwiNet support. That's given us uh, the ability to understand that what the commercialization journey looked like so that we could secure seed funding. And then furthermore, um, Frank and company were successful in securing um, support from the Breakthrough Energy Fellows Program as well. So um, how stressful is that fundraising side of things when you've got a start-up? Uh, it's, it's almost part and parcel. Uh, you know, it's, it's a journey that you're on. I think one of the key things is, is having a view as to what does a sustainable uh, business model look like so effectively, and your funding should support that. Um, so I think there's there's challenging times even right now. The capital markets are very um, difficult and um, risk averse. Um, but you know, then that just comes down to how agile as a company can you be to weather tough times and so that you can go to greener pastures. Frank, um, how do you find it uh, with the remote working side of things with you in Wellington, Paul in Christchurch, and and Jay, Jay Chana obviously in Wellington as well. 
uh, I think that's um, it's difficult in, in, in today's time to say that working remotely is, is a challenge. I think we have now, uh, unfortunately, be extremely familiar with working remotely with, with the pandemic. So um, I'm probably spending you know, more time on the phone or on Zoom with Paul than uh, the rest of the team base in, in Wellington. So I don't think you know, working remotely is, a, is an issue in, in, in today's world. Uh, where are things at then at taking this um, technology out of the lab and scaling it up? Where, where are you at on the commercialisation path? Yeah, um, we're, we're trucking ahead pretty well. Um, we've just uh, completed our initial designs for an ammonia pilot plant. So that's kind of a 20 or 40 foot container sized um, uh, piece of equipment that we'd look to produce ammonia with. And so that's kind of our first kind of um, first start of our journey into the kind of industrial ammonia landscape. Um, so we're kind of you know, gearing up to do that in the next kind of 12 to 24 months. And have you got the funding for that or will you need to raise for it? Yeah, we're, we're currently raising at the moment for that, yeah. And what will that prove? That will prove you can produce it um, at, 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 at scale? Yeah, exactly. It's, I mean, it's probably one of the, the, the biggest challenge with any kind of industrial or a lot of science processes is actually scaling it up so that it, you know, works at tons or kilograms production per day uh, initially um, with the with the intention of getting towards tons, I should say. Um, and same for other industries as well, uh, because a lot of the challenges with any technology is that there's always these small parasitic defects that are within um, the process or material or function of it. Um, and you can only really discover those at scale. And then what you want to do is to really address them at you know, a small and reasonable scale that doesn't cost as much as well. Because if they carry through all the way to your commercial plant and you have to spend a hundred million dollars trying to backtrack and fix something, it's a real pain in the ass. What do you see as perhaps the biggest barrier to commercialising this? Uh, yeah, I, I uh, support the scale up as, as the largest challenge, but then there's probably one of the other side ones that's maybe not considered too much is the public awareness of ammonia. Um, it's a new fuel or um, product that, you know, the public's pretty unfamiliar with. Um, and it's going to become a relatively large or ubiquitous chemical in the energy landscape in the kind of next decade, in the coming decades. So there's a piece of that, that could be a real challenge as well, because um, there's an education piece with that, but then there's also ammonia is not a friendly chemical um, from a toxicity point of view and, and, um, environmental perspective uh, if it's spilled and mishandled um, but we've also got a very large industry with a very good track record for how to handle this chemical so the health and safety and the environmental impact should be um, actually is pretty well understood of how to handle it and appropriately store it so but again it's a, this piece that the public has to kind of be brought up um, so they understand that. What's the size of the potential market and how much um, does Liquium hope to capture? Yeah, it's a really large market. Uh, the ammonia market is looking to um, support the maritime sector, the energy power sector, the fertiliser sector, um, and our technology can align to the industrial standard uh, manufacturing process today. So we're hoping to 
you know, that we can get it out to as many plants as possible um, and as soon as possible. Frank, um, what do you think could be done to inspire more um, researchers to become entrepreneurs within universities and, and Crown Research Institutes? Yes, that's, that's an interesting question I'm, I'm getting quite often, in fact. And I've always tempted to say that uh, please do not try to force academics to become entrepreneurs, you know. Um, but rather, you know, um, provide uh, the right ecosystem or support for those academics who want to become uh, entrepreneurs to be able to succeed. So that's probably more a question of implementation pathways on inspiring. Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, I would say I probably uh, uh, we all see some value in uh, engaging and talking with young students, you know, um, not only at um, university level, even maybe before, to tell them that, you know, here we are talking about science and innovation, how, how they can be, you know, uh, a very rewarding career pathway for them, and also how they can um, have, you know, um, a significant impact, it can be, you know, socio-economic impacts or environmental impacts. So it's more like this, you know, I will, I will probably... Uh, uh, answer your question. And do you feel you have enough support? Yeah, I mean, you know, we often talk about, you know, uh, mentors and, and support. So, you know, for, for us, our technology like Liquium, as Paul said, um, you know, financial support is obviously critical. Um, but on the other hand, you know, you need some coaching and training and mentoring and um, if you want to speed up the development of your technology. And I guess we have been very fortunate to, um, it has been, you know, very overwhelming to get the, the strong support of the Deep Tech New Zealand community, you know, entrepreneurs and startup or even more uh, mature companies. So yes, I think, you know, we, we have been lucky to be in a very nice um, ecosystem in New Zealand. All right, well, thanks for your time, Frank Natale and Paul Geraghty. Thank you, Fiona. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. Smart Media is a media agency founded by Mike Wilson, with a selling point of not operating on commissions and rebates and operating with transparency. Mike is with me now. Mike, thank you very much for coming in. Um, tell us about what made you launch smart media right well i saw um, it's a bit of a cliche answer saw a gap in the market um having been in marketing um you know i held a position as a head of digital marketing at vodafone been a cmo um a gm of marketing at nz ski down in queenstown and i constantly there's there's this attrition or this battle that can sometimes happen between your agency as a marketer and you've, you know, it's it's hard to get the right agency. It's whether it's a creative agency or a, or a media agency. And for the last probably four years of my career, I took it in house and bought the majority of things direct. Um, but that's when I found out that I could have been saving even more in my spends as a marketer because there are there are commissions and there's rebates. Um, you know, usually up to about twenty percent. So. I kind of sat back, um, moved up, moved back to Auckland um, with the family, and then just went down the path of figuring out what I was going to do next. And looked at starting a creative agency, 
joke that it would be death by a thousand cuts because <laughs> everyone can choose it. That's not pink enough, that's not big enough, make the logo. And media um, is more, it's more rigid, it's fixed, it's 15, 30 second breaks, it's YouTube, it's, it's Facebook, it's, it's, you can't, it's, it's channel based. And so the discussions become, I feel, a lot more mature. Um, and it was a strength of, of mine to negotiate and it's something I enjoy doing. And so I think naturally I just said, hey, look, I want to start a media agency. Right. Mm. So you have a problem fundamentally with the way it's operated up until this point. Mm-hmm. What do you tell your customers, your clients, um, about the service you're offering to them and the transparency of the fees they're paying? Well, I think the first thing is we open with this transparent dialogue because there there's, there's a hesitancy as a marketer to put your entire spend in front of somebody else, mm. right? Because of the exact reason of this lack of transparency. And so basically what we say is the best possible way, like we want you to trust us and we, w- we would like you to open up your, your media spend Ideally, your marketing spend, but at least your media spend. Mm. Let us audit that. Let us go through it with a fine-tooth comb, and then usually from there we, we find um, that for their particular clients or their particular customers that they're seeking, quite often they're not in the right channels, or there is a perception that they're in the right channel, but the, the data doesn't really speak to it. And so we, we use a saying, we say, facts don't care about your feelings. <laughs> And so we start most meetings at some point, we'll say, hey, facts don't care about your feelings. Right. And what you're going to hear today might be quite contradictory to what your agency is telling you. And we get that all the time. That's, that's pretty much how we open. And then usually what happens is the meeting will, will end and then they'll go back and talk to their agency. And then <clears throat> nine times out of 10, unfortunately, they'll probably believe them, but it's, it's hard to be confronted with the truth. And so we're, we're quite aggressive in, in what we like we're dedicated to our craft and we are very clear about who we want to work with and who we don't. And so that's quite confronting for a lot of people, but at the same time it kind of separates the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, digital advertising has become a much bigger part of the overall advertising mix um, as time has gone on. And one of the things that it promises is more transparency about your spend and and what Mm -hmm. you get for your spend. Why has that sort of not worked out that way? Okay, so the the catchphrase is programmatic um, and people, I think, they misinterpret programmatic. Programmatic has been around for since... Google AdWords, right? So the very first time Google launched their paid ads, that is programmatic. It's basically using software to um, create a better outcome in terms of more efficiency about where your money goes. So it's all automated. So the second you go and put a, put your uh, credit card into Google AdWords or into Facebook as, as a florist, as a small business owner, you'll set your ads up and you'll geolocate and target and then Facebook or Google or YouTube or whoever, it will essentially like guarantee that your spend is getting spent more efficiently. That's the promise of programmatic, right? However, what's happened is that agencies um, were getting rebates and commissions from publishing companies here in New Zealand. Your, I won't name anyone, but mm. the likes of this person, that person, that person, yeah. and they're all rebated. Google came along and brought transparency Facebook came along and bought 
a level of transparency and all of that is visible. However, agencies couldn't make money. You can't make money from Google, you can't make money from Facebook, you can't make money from YouTube, it's all visible. So then you would have to get into fraud. You'd actually have to take a client's spend, say they're spending 100,000 on Facebook and only put 50 in. Right. Well then you start getting into, yeah. you're, you're becoming a, a criminal enterprise, not, a, not an agency. <laughs> So then about, I think it was, a, I, I want to say eight years ago, it might have been a little bit longer than that, is DV360 came out. And DV360 is a programmatic platform, but it allows agencies to put a markup into the system. And it was brought about by media agencies complaining to Silicon Valley, basically, hey, you've cut our lunch. And so Google came to the party with DV360 um, and it said, here you go, and by the way, there's an agency markup button, essentially a fraud button, and you can mark that up. Right. And so if you spent, let's say you came to us and you said, hey, I've got 100000 to spend on digital advertising, we, would, we could take that, we could put that into DB360, and then we could mark up, yep. unknown to you. Mm -hmm. And it would hide that and allocate it, and then we'd get a report saying you've spent 100000 when really... Right. We've marked up, and that's happening. Yeah, and it's it's a real thing, and people aren't wanting to discuss or talk about it. But what you're saying is that programmatic is something that you can just do yourself directly with these platforms. <clears throat> yeah, you can. You can you can buy your Google AdWords natively. Mm -hmm. You can buy your Facebook natively, and you can buy your YouTube natively. Yeah, and they are more efficient than programmatic, than, than, sorry, than DB360. However, it's more work, it's more time consuming. Mm. Yeah. Um, the argument is you don't unlock the premium features where you can't go in and buy like the homepage takeover of some company. Well, you still can, you just have to negotiate directly. So right. it's, there, it's uh, we've got proof and evidence that if we went head to head with DB360 using our own native platforms, we'll get far more efficiency. Right. Yeah. I can imagine I mean, your ideas are quite controversial, shall we say, mm -hmm. um, that you must get a bit of pushback on them. 100%. Yeah. Yep. And who, who is complaining the most about what you're saying? Oh, other agencies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, other agencies. I think the, the industry is scared. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think we're, we're talking like recently we had, um, we're part of the marketing association and... Um, Recently, we, we had someone uh, from an organization literally calling every company that's on our website, basically just trying to, you know, wow. to warm middle, them middle, off. Middle, middle, middle with us, basically. Me. And, and I mean, for me, that, that, that's, that's just entertaining. Yeah. You know, it's just like we're doing the right thing. If we're ruffling that many feathers, and at the end of the day, people just need to kind of chill and, and look in the mirror and go, hey, if you're committing fraud, you're committing fraud. Mm. And, and, it's, and people don't, that word, like, oh, my gosh. But it's, yeah. it's if, you, if you're misleading your clients and you're putting schedules in front of them that have markups and hidden rebates and hidden commissions, that's fraud. Um, on the other hand, you could be a disruptor of a, of mm -hmm. a sector that's working quite well, thanks very much. Um, <laughs> we don't need you sort of creating problems. But yeah. you are a disruptive Force. Yeah, we're a very disruptive force. Yeah. yeah, and that's why I mean we we went out with the tagline, um, the media unagency. Yeah, 
And it's not that we don't like the industry. I think there's a lot of colour. There's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's 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 not. We're not here to like poo-poo the industry. We're here to say, look, there needs to be some audit here. There needs to be some integrity. We are the last. We're one of the last industries to go through regulation. You yeah. know, and there's and we've got to face the music. There's untold parties still. There's still untold junkets. There's trips yeah. to Fiji. There's trips overseas and to other regions. And it's just like, come on, guys, like. We've, we've gone through COVID, we've gone through tough times and there has to be a level of accountability and some certainty for people. And as a marketer, that's the thing that annoyed me the most was this lack of transparency and this lack of honesty and talking to people face to face and having, you know that feeling when someone's lying to you and you, you know that they're lying but you can't put your finger on it. That's what it felt like for me working with my agencies every day. And so I think we're wanting to come in and do the opposite of that and bring some level of, of peace and comfort and work with people that at the end of the day want a good work-life balance. We don't need to be working till midnight and in the weekends. Marketing can be a mature business that is well-planned and, and I think that's another side of the coin is that that's where we're coming in disrupting, saying that we're, we're wanting to have our campaigns organised um, like a week to four weeks out. And that's been unheard of because the Friday 5.30 p.m. phone call has become the norm for our industry for a lot of people. And we're wanting to bring, again, some business acumen to marketing and to media. That's great. Mike, mm-hmm. thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. E-Roads board put up a strong fight against the recent takeover offer for the company at last month's AGM. But Hamish McNichol ponders in this week's shoeshine whether it will be enough to ward off the vultures. Hi Hamish. Hi Will. Um, we're looking at E-Road saga again. Um, it's been a busy 18 months. What, what's, what's the story? Yes, it has. Um, and it's been a particularly busy month or so while you've been off, <laughs> which is nice of you. Um, since you wrote the shoeshine, uh, a few bumps in the E-Road must have been about 18 months ago. Uh, yeah, a lot has happened. You wrote that on the back of Stephen Newman, um, the sort of guy, the CEO, the guy most associated with the company, publicly at least, sort of resigned out of nowhere. Um, still hasn't really been explained why why he left. Um, but anyway, we've moved on a little bit from there. Um, pretty much the, the company's share price was above $4.40 just before he resigned. It got as low as 52 cents about two months ago. Um, So it's sort of been one-way traffic. And along the way, after his resignation, there's been a bunch of things that have all added into this. So um, they appointed a new CEO, uh, Mark Hine, who was the company's general counsel. He was made the interim chief executive and then appointed to the role on a uh, permanent basis shortly thereafter. Uh, They've won a couple of big contracts. They also did a bit of a redundancy round. They engaged people like McKinsey to help them come up with all sorts of nice new taglines. They got Goldman Sachs on board to help them assess opportunities in the North American market. Um, which could be all manner of things, and they're still working on exactly what that might look like. Um, More recently then, of course, in June, we had this takeover bidder emerge. Um, Again, sort of out of nowhere, but maybe not a massive surprise given that share price drop. And more recently then, we've had the board reject that offer, um, the chair, Graham Stewart, stand down after five years in the role to be replaced by Susan Patterson. And then just recently, they had the AGM where... 
pretty much the board was sitting out at stall for why you should back us. This is why we've rejected the offer. But obviously still lurking in the background is the fact that this bid has been made um, and the bidder owns nearly 20% of the company, so it's not going any way anytime soon. Mm. Uh, action-packed, um, you know, particularly as you say, uh, you know, I, I took the month of July off uh, work for paternity leave and uh, and this offer came in just before I left and then the chairman basically was signalled that he would go and then he was gone, so I, I came back at the end of July and, and there's a new chairperson there, yeah. um, you know, even though, you know, Graham was there for a while and it was all seemed amicable, um, it's just, there's a lot of change. Um, so the the offer itself. Tell me a little bit more about that and how it's structured. So this offer came in June 22, um, and it sort of came in as a couple of offers have come in in the last month or so where um, this party, Brilliant, APAC, uh, disclosed that it had all of a sudden acquired a 17.7% stake in E-Road. Um, they'd bought it for nearly $22.7 million. Uh, they'd done that in two trances, um, on market, over the course of about a month, uh, for sort of roughly 72-ish cents a share. And then, again, just before they disclosed that they had this massive shareholding, they bought another $20 million worth of shares at $1.30 a share. So that came out, that it disclosed, Eero went into a trading halt, and then they disclosed, yep, this company has made a uh, non-binding offer, um, unsolicited, it was for a full takeover um, at $1.30 a share, which valued the company at sort of roughly $150 million. Um, Brilliant is part of this company called the Valaris Group, which is then in turn owned by an even bigger company called Constellation Software. That's listed in Canada, uh, Canada $57 billion market cap company, so a really big player. Um, Valaris is sort of its investment arm, I guess you'd call it. They buy and hold a bunch of tech companies all around the world, even in Australasia. Um, I think in the last, sort of since 2019, they've bought about 18 companies. Most of those have been private. Um, in New Zealand, they own about eight companies as well, many which you probably have never heard of, but lots of little tech companies as well. So they put out this offer. The, bid, uh, the board has come back and said that materially undervalues the company. We're rejecting it. Um, there was then a report in the Australian that uh, a, an upped bid was coming or was imminent. And then the day later, Valaris came out and said, no, no, that's rubbish. We're not looking to reconsider our offer, but we are keeping the door open. The key thing here is that um, the board of E-Road hasn't granted Valaris due diligence yet. And Valaris obviously wants due diligence before they take their offer any further. Um, so you covered the AGM last week. Um, what more was said about, I suppose, the, the the offer and the future prospects of the company? Obviously, the, the board uh, and the executive are banking on um, coming through with some of those targets, that, those high targets that they've set. So, I mean, you've attended plenty of AGMs in your time. They're not always the raciest affairs, but the first hour of this was dedicated to addresses from um, the chair, the CEO, the CFO, basically going into very incredible detail, and I've spoken to a couple of shareholders since, and they all agreed it was very detailed um, on what exactly the strategy is going forward. Uh, they want to be free cash flow neutral by 2025 financial year and then positive by 2026 financial year. So those job cuts we mentioned earlier, that's part of it. They've been cutting out lots of costs in this business. They cut out $10 million worth of costs last year. They're on track to deliver another $10 million of cost reductions this year. 
Um, and then they're basically going all in on the North American market. Um, that big customer that they signed in, the, in North America, they see that as sort of the model going forward. So they very much set out their stall as, look, we, we've refreshed the strategy. We've got refreshed leadership. We've refreshed the board a little bit. Um, we back what we're trying to do. We are on track to um, get back into the, the green, as it were, which you know tech investors around the world at the moment are wanting cash flow positive tech companies. Uh, this idea that you can just burn cash um, forever is, is gone as, as the markets have turned. Um, and so, yeah, back us. We will deliver this. Um, and also, we're still working on this North American partner with Goldman Sachs. They had, and they did concede, that they'd hoped to, at the AGM, be able to present something a bit more tangible on that to um, shareholders, but mm. these things, you know, they can take a while. Um, so that still hasn't been delivered. But, I mean, that North American partnership could look like a partnership. It could look like a capital injection. It could look like all sorts of things. So they did say they're talking to multiple parties on that. They're sort of all still at the confidential stage. So they are working hard. Um, but again, in the background, you've got this Valaris bid and the board did also concede that the share price has been unsatisfactory for a long time. So they need to do something about it. Mm. I suppose that mainly sort of answers the question of, of what happened next. What, what happens next? Um, there's a bit of uncertainty there, as you say, with the Goldman Sachs process, with the, you know, whether Valaris will come back with another bid. Um, but I suppose the company just needs to knuckle down and, and, and hit those um, those targets. Yeah, I sort of draw comparisons with the push-pay takeover saga from earlier in the year. Um, you know, a lot of particularly local New Zealand shareholders, the big institutions, came out against the first offer that was tabled for push-pay really, really strongly, said this materially, you know, this is nowhere near even in the ballpark for what we'd accept. And then that bidder came back with a 6% hiring offer and then everyone was like, oh, yeah, that's sweet. So, uh, you know, 6% isn't nothing, but it's also not huge. Some people question whether Valaris actually has the appetite to up their offer very much. Um, Clear Capital has put out a pretty detailed analysis of um, a bunch of other acquisitions it's made in the local market over the last four years or so, and also a comparison of other transactions. And basically, if you look at it from an enterprise value um, to revenue ratio, this offer for E-Road is about one times. Comparable deals in the market over the last couple of years, the mean uh, ratio has been about 3.8 times, which is materially higher. So you could argue that you know, they do need to lift their price quite substantially. But if you look at their track record of acquisitions, they're pretty much all private companies, they're pretty much all small, and they've pretty much all been one times revenue basis. So... Whether they've got the appetite to to lift their offer is pretty questionable. Um, the other couple of things as well, Stephen Newman, um, when he resigned, he still held 12%, just over 12% of the company. I think a lot of us in the market assumed that when Valaris emerged as this big shareholder that Stephen had sold out. Um, he hasn't. He still retains his stake. And just before... Um, or just after they rejected the bid, he actually signed back on as a consultant to the company. So he's now back on board working for the company, working to improve their technology, and he still retains a 12% stake. So any further bid that comes is going to have to get him on board, even if it's a takeover or a scheme. Either way, they're going to have to get that 12% stake on board um, in order to get away. And obviously he's been involved with the company a long time when the share price was back above $4. So, you know... 
it's it's going to take a lot, I think, to to get a bid um, in front of shareholders again. But at the same time, free cash flow neutral by 2025, that's still a long way away. There's still a lot of uncertainty out there in the market. Um, they do have to hit a lot of targets. So it's just how much appetite, I guess, shareholders have to hold on a little bit longer. Mm, yeah, they might get some confidence having Newman back in the fold as well. For sure. Uh, great. We'll, we'll both be keeping an eye on this really closely. So um, thanks very much for your shoeshine this week. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz. Listener.